Welcome to the Tanya Acker Show. I know that a lot of people want to have their day in court, and sometimes you have to. But sometimes, my friend, that day sucks. There are times when litigants don't play fairly. There are times when lawyers don't play fairly. There are times when the judge just may not care. How do you get through all of that? If you've got to be in court, and I sincerely hope you don't, unless you are fighting for something that is clear that you're not going to get unless you do go there. But really, I hope you can avoid it. Sometimes you just can't. And when you can't, you should be prepared for the fact that there will be some curveballs that you may not expect. And who better to talk about all that with me than my old friend, Larry Backman, esteemed and accomplished trial lawyer. Larry's done criminal cases. Larry's done civil cases. Larry, of course, was my colleague on Hot Bench uh, for a few years. So here I am with Larry Backman to talk about what's going on in our court system. Welcome, 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 my great friend, Larry Backman, my former colleague, Larry Backman. Nice to see you, friend. It's nice to see you. It's good to see you, too. It's fun to be here. It's like memories, memories. you know, old times revisited. Old true, times. true. Yes, it so, is. You know, what's interesting, Larry, is that when you and I were uh, working on the show together, there was always something that came up, right? Like a litigant would show up and you'd be like, I wasn't expecting that. After all of these years of practice, I know you started practicing when you were five, but after yeah. all of these <laughs> many Same years, thing. is there anything that surprises you about the way that people fight in court? Very seldom, very seldom. Every now and then, some people can get really down and dirty. Their client, no service, no good. I think I find today that lawyers, especially in the civil arena, because uh, I've transitioned primarily from criminal defense to domestic violence in the family law courts. And what I find are that the lawyers, especially the young lawyers coming up, take things much too personally. You know, I was taught when I started out, uh, you know, my mentors told me, never take it home with you mm. and never get so personally invested that you lose your objectivity. And I find that that's what happens today, uh, especially in family law, which came as a shock. I came from the federal system doing heavy duty federal criminal defense to the show and then to family law court doing quasi-criminal, which was contempt and domestic violence. And the way attorneys handle themselves in family law came is somewhat of a shock to me. So that's really the only thing I can say. There's a lot of bad behavior that goes on in family law courts that a federal judge, if what I saw or what I see in, in family law court occurred in federal court, uh, the judge would tell them, go pack your toothbrush. You're going away for a while. So. so, I mean, that's a really interesting point, Lair, because in family law, you're talking about conflicts that are inherently emotional. I mean, I can't think of anything that is more personal and that might be more personally painful, right, than dissolving a relationship, a family that you believed in. One would think that that is an arena 
where the rules should be enforced even more stringently because there's such a possibility for things to go out of control. Why are things so wild there? And I'm glad that you reminded uh, all of my viewers and listeners, I mean, you've really seen it all. You've practiced in federal criminal cases. Uh, you've practiced in various, uh, in, in the civil arena. Why is the family law arena so much the Wild West, in your opinion? I think a lot of it is, uh, I'll be really blunt. I think not only are there a lot of new or younger lawyers practicing family, but the bench in family law is comprised of young judges who first get appointed to the bench, who don't have a lot of trial experience, and therefore they don't have a lot of control uh, over the attorneys or the litigants. And, you know, it, it, I said it somewhat tongue in cheek when I said if what occurs in family law occurred in federal court, which is where I've spent the majority of my career. These people would be remanded in the custody. And I have to disagree with you. Mm. I don't find family law issues rising to the extreme that I've dealt with in federal. In federal, I've dealt with federal death penalty cases, RICO mm. cases. Mm -hmm. You have the people you represent have more on the line, more to lose mm -hmm. than the people going through a divorce in a divorce case. And again, I don't want to sound callous, but in a divorce case, you know, you have two primary issues. You have the division of assets and debts. So you're talking about really monetary issues. And then you have custody uh, of young children or uh, middle-aged children, uh, young adults, uh, teenagers, preteens. So the custody issues, I understand the emotions that go into that. But still, nobody's losing their life. That's a great Nobody's point. gonna be sentenced to federal prison for 20 or 30 years. Right, no, no one's, one's going to jail over an affair. No That's one's going right. to jail. Yeah, right. yeah, in family law court, you're not looking at mandatory minimums. You're not looking at you know mandatory minimums for crack cocaine and disparity issues vis-a-vis -vis powder cocaine which was a, a, you know, that was a major issue, discrepancy in sentencing, crack cocaine being a primarily black drug, powder white cocaine being primarily a white drug. So we had for years and years and years, this disparity where crack cocaine was sentenced 50 times higher than the corresponding same amount or same quantity of powder cocaine. When I was with uh, doing federal, we had sentencing guidelines that were mandatory. The judges had no discretion in federal court to sentence beneath the federal sentencing guideline that was applicable to the particular case. And if they did, it was typically reversed on appeal before the Ninth Circuit. The government would win those battles uh, consistently. Talk to us about some of the antics that you've had to encounter from other lawyers. Like, look, we know that litigants and people who are in the middle of a fight are going to be at odds. They're going to be emotional regardless of sure. what the issue it's is. It's an adversarial it's system. It's an adversarial system. But talk to me about bad behavior by lawyers. The best way I can 
You know, I can give you certain examples, but before I go into these examples, I'm going to tell you what I do. I have done, I can recall doing federal death cases, RICO cases, narcotic cases, uh, major uh, fraud cases in federal court, and actually going out to lunch during, at times, trial with the U.S. attorney I was opposing, or certainly after the case is over. It seemed that everybody in the, at least my experience has been that the people that I opposed in federal court, they did not take the case home with them. They did not take it personally. What, you know, it's like the old saying, what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. And it's all, it's almost like that. What happened in federal court in the heat of combat stayed there. And it didn't prevent us from having a civil relationship or even a friendship during the trial and after the trial, not someone in family law court. I have, I did a family law case with a dear friend of mine, and she's going to remain nameless, as is the lawyer who made the comments. But my friend actually worked for this lawyer. Uh, at one point in time, she then left the lawyer's firm. Uh, I tried this case with my friend. Two women, they were gay women, they were married, uh, and it was a sexual assault case. And my friend's mother had been a family law attorney. And I, I believe she may have resigned from the bar. She had a personal tragedy involving a client that she had represented. The mother actually represented a client got the children back, and then the client killed the children. So her mother left the practice of law. It caused a tremendous uh, emotional turmoil on the mother. My friend was the daughter of this woman whose client killed the children. When we tried this case against her former boss, and this was not a young uh, attorney, this was a seasoned trial lawyer. This trial lawyer made a comment to my friend. During trial, I see the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. Wow. And I was, I, 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 my mouth dropped. Her partner, who was trying the case with her, had my client on the stand. And my client had been sexually assaulted and this lawyer said to my client in cross, did you orgasm as she was being raped? And the judge took a recess. Again, my mouth fell open. I'd never seen anything like that. And the reason I bring this up is because there were also a number of young associates that were watching these two partners try the case. And so this is the message that these two senior partners were sending to their associates. It's okay to try a case like that and say comments like that. And I found it vulgar. Uh, I found it, it was really despicable conduct. Nothing happened, no sanctions, nothing. Uh, again, because you had a judge who uh, couldn't keep control of the courtroom. It sort of speaks to what I think is part of the reason why so many people don't like distrust lawyers, uh, that is, until they need us. But there is definitely a sense that 
when folks are fighting in court, they don't know that they're going to get a fair fight. They don't know that that lawyer on the other side is going to be forced to play by the rules. Because as you know, and you know this certainly better than I do, you've tried a whole hell of a lot more cases. Sometimes all the lawyer wants to do is to make a stink in front of a jury. Raise a question, even if you know the judge is going to throw it out. But you can't unring the bell. And so this bad behavior really helps to, I think it serves to undermine what people generally think of um, in terms of you know, the, how much they can trust or respect or have faith in the legal system. Do you think I'm overstating that at all? No, I agree with it. I agree with it. I think people come away, litigants come away with bad feelings day in and day out. The attorneys on the other side, their own attorneys who they don't believe protects them enough or goes far enough to protect them, and the judges who allow it. Uh, I, you know, I think for the most part, certainly in the family law arena, for the most part, litigants in that arena don't understand the adversarial system or grasp entirely how adversarial it can get and how arbitrary and capricious a bench officer can be. Remember, in family law, all these DV cases, these contempt cases, the divorce cases, they're all tried by a judge. There are no juries there. So that's a problem, too. That's why there's such bad behavior, because I think it's certainly tolerated far more when there's just a judge listening. Uh, I know. And I'm Why? Guilty Why is that? Why do you think that is? Because I would think the opposite. And no. I've seen it. I've been there. I've seen it. I completely agree with you. But it's curious to me because one would think that if you are uh, the one responsible for deciding what comes into the record and for maintaining control of the courtroom and, you know, you don't have to defer to a jury's findings, that there would be a... Uh, like the common sense notion might be that there would be more control. Why do you think so many judges tolerate so much bad behavior? Why do they let it slide? They believe they can separate the chaff from the wheat. They can tell what's truly important and what's, again, mind my bluntness, what's bullshit and what uh, they're going to discard. They, they all believe they can unring the bell. Whereas the opposite in a jury trial, once that bell's rung, you can't unring it from a jury. You, the judge's choice is, do I declare a mistrial or do I give them a jury instruction saying disregard that? That's not appropriate. That's not evidence you can consider. As a defense attorney, I'm always, if that is, is testimony elicited by the prosecution or by the government prosecutor, I'm going to move for the mistrial. They're going to say, give a jury instruction, judge. Mea culpa, give a jury instruction. That'll correct it. That, that works some of the time, some of the time it doesn't. You know, you had asked me to come up with some examples of sanctions for bad behavior. Uh, and, you know, I thought of a couple instances, one where uh, the sanctions were imposed against the government for bad conduct, uh, discovery violations. It was a police corruption trial back in the 90s. It was about a nine to 10 month trial 
jury trial that I was involved in, in front of who I considered at the time to be the class of the federal bench. His name was Robert Takasugi. And we called him Tak. And Tak was just a phenomenal judge. And what happened was the government, we had a snitch who was a sheriff sergeant. His name was Sobel. You met that, an informer. An informer. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 Who, who the government gave free reign to correct his own statements, his own 302s. They never disclosed that to us. It came out in my cross-examination. So Tak declared a mistrial in that case because the government... I mean, that was really outrageous conduct on the government. You're talking, just uh, so people uh, know the context in which uh, this is coming up, you know, there are different ways that people can misbehave, that litigants can misbehave in court. There are a whole bunch of rules about how litigants, whether or not you're the government or a civil litigant, are supposed to proceed. And one of the things that folks are supposed to do is do discovery, turn over items so that the uh, playing field is level and fair and folks have access to appropriate information so decision makers um, can uh, see each side grappling with the same set of facts and then make decisions. What you're describing is a situation where the government withheld information that it was supposed to turn over, right? Which is another type of really, uh, I mean, this is a misconduct that we see not just in criminal cases, but in civil cases, and it's it's very, True. very common. And so the consequence of this bad behavior was a mistrial. It, explain to my viewers and listeners what that means. So a mistrial is a where the judge basically says, it's not going to go to the jury. I'm declaring what we call a mistrial, which is can then either result in a new trial or dismissal. In this case, this was a very bizarre situation because we were in probably six months into trial and the government spent tens of millions of dollars on this prosecution. About a week later, the government came back and begged uh, Takasugi to reverse the mistrial order and let me have a different sanction whereby I could continue my cross of Robert Sobel, this Sergeant Sobel character, and every time he answered, uh, I, would, I would be able to get an instruction from Takasugi that the jury should disregard that because he lacked credibility. He had no credibility. So, you know, they were damned if they did, damned if they didn't. So ultimately, it resulted in a dismissal of a number of cases uh, or a number of counts, I should say, and a mistrial as to the other counts. It was never retried. It was ultimately that case was dismissed against my client. And in federal, the viewers have to understand there's usually multiple defendants. That was a case that involved, uh, in my trial, six defendants. I've had cases in federal court that have involved 50 defendants, Hmm. and then they're broken up into groups. But uh, I had another federal case in front of Gary Feast. It was a dope case in which the government used drug dogs and Feast ordered the government to turn over the training records of the dogs that were taken into the apartment and found the dope. And Feast made it really clear to the government prosecutor, I don't want any nonsense. I want all the records of the dogs 
turned over. I guess he had had experience where they had played games with him before. Well, sure as hell, during the trial, it turned out when the dog trainer was called to the stand, the defense hadn't gotten all of the records. There were more records that were not turned over. And Feast, I've never seen anything like it. I, and I love this judge. This judge uh, is something else. He He's no longer on the bench. He's retired. But he's, he was an ex-U.S. attorney. And he looked at the government prosecutor and he said, I'm dismissing the case. And I don't care what you tell your staff at your Friday evening meetings back at the office. So, I mean, you know, when, when, when do you hear something like that from a federal judge? There's dismissal, there's mistrial, there's evidentiary sanctions. And in the worst situations, there's contempt. And I've been on, uh, you know, I've been on the receiving end of contempt when I've stepped over the line. I had an assault case involving an assault weapon that was actually purchased before the assault ban. And I went into court and the judge told me that it is not a defense that he purchased the weapon before the ban went into effect. Well, in jury selection, I started asking jurors, how many of you have ever bought weapons prior to the ban going into effect? Then the government steps in and makes it retroactively illegal. And you're not going to ask that, Mr. Backman. So I asked it again. And I was, she said, we're going to have a contempt hearing after this trial's over. Um, so that was jury nullification on my part, and it worked, but <laughs> I was held in contempt for it. <laughs> and again, just explaining to folks what that means, jury nullification is when you are asking the jury to ignore the law and yeah. uh, exonerate your client. And it worked? True. Your client it was did exonerated? Work. It did work. I got a, I got an acquittal in that case. Yes. What happened to your contempt proceeding? Did you go to jail, Larry Backman, no, and you tell no. me about it? No, I apologized to her, and she said, okay, goodbye. So, <laughs> so let's move back to the civil arena, though, because these sorts of dismissals are rare. You know, you talked about how wildly and unfairly people can fight. Uh, when they're fighting in you know, certain sorts of family law cases. What remedy do people have? Because as you and I both know, folks can get up there and put their hand on that Bible and say they're swearing under penalty of perjury. I mean, they may as well be swearing on a box of Cracker Jacks because people often do not pay attention to that oath. And even when it's clear someone's lying, it's rare that people are actually prosecuted and charged for, for perjury. Why, why is that, Larry? I don't have an answer for you other than I have assumptions, but I don't have an answer. What's my your best assumption? assumption? My assumption is they're difficult to prosecute. The elements are not just that you lied, but that the lie was material to the issues before the court. And there are jury instructions that describe what a jury has what elements have to be proven uh, for you to prevail in either a criminal or a civil case? And both the jury instructions in federal and the jury instructions in California state court, they pretty much parrot or mirror one, one another. And those instructions says it has to be intentional. It has to be a, something that's false under oath, but it is critical that it be material to the issues 
presented to the jury or the grand jury. The state court jury instruction simply says it has to be material. I think in combination with proving those cases, probably budget constraints dictate that that is low-hanging fruit. And the prosecution is not going to spend a lot of time doing that. There's other, there's other more effective, I think, remedies if somebody is lying. Understand, viewers have to understand there's two sides to every lawsuit. One who is prosecuting the lawsuit, be it the government or be it a civil litigator, prosecuting a case for money. They have the burden of proof. If they lie during their case in chief, there's always a motion at the end of the prosecution's case, be it civil or criminal. Again, in federal, it's a Rule 28 motion. In state court, it can be called an 1118 motion for acquittal. In civil, there's a civil code section. Uh, I've forgotten what the number is offhand. That'll, you can argue to the court that the plaintiff, the petitioner, the prosecution, they've not met their burden of proof. Credibility is something the court can consider in granting that motion. So if you can make out a case that, look, the petitioner lied, the government's main witness lied, and therefore, judge, there's no credibility, you shouldn't believe them, you should dismiss without putting us through the burden of putting a defense on. I'm often successful in domestic violence cases because I both prosecute them and defend them. When I'm on the defense side, I've been, as I say, fairly successful in getting the case dismissed prior to my having to put a defense case on. And a lot of that is, you know, judge, the petitioner is not credible. They lied on X, Y, and Z points. I've shown through cross-examination that they were lying on that. This is evidence that's inconsistent with their testimony. They should not be believed. And we walk away winning. Those are, those are the sweetest victories when somebody is not telling the truth. And then there's also lawsuits that one might bring for malicious prosecution if you feel yes. like someone's brought a case against you. But you have to win. Um, and then you have to be prepared to file a whole new lawsuit. Have you ever been, have you ever uh, prosecuted or defended uh, malicious prosecution action? I think I have, but, but I couldn't re, uh, but I couldn't tell you for sure. It's a that, hard, and that's you know, civil. yeah, and it's a hard bar because, right, like after you win, you then have to essentially bring a brand new lawsuit and Correct. prove that that case was brought against you for no good reason. That's a high standard. A lesser standard might be sanctions, right? So if, so if, Talk to my viewers about how sanctions might help either discourage bad behavior from time to time or at least give you a little bit of a remedy. You, won't be, you may not be made completely whole, but a little bit of a remedy. Well, there are those cases in which, by statute, by law, a, per, a litigant who wins is entitled to prevailing party attorney fees. For instance, domestic violence cases, um, there is a prevailing party 
attorney fee statute. So if I'm representing somebody who is seeking the restraining order and we win, we can then file a motion with the court pursuant to a statute uh, and ask for prevailing party attorney fees. Uh, until recently, the losing party could not, uh, except under certain circumstances. But the code has now been changed this year to allow uh, losing parties in domestic violence cases. Uh, I'm sorry. If a plaintiff brings a, res uh, a request for a restraining order against someone and that plaintiff loses, the party who wins the case, the respondent, is now entitled to prevailing, prevailing party attorney fees. That was not the case, except under limited circumstances prior to January of this year. It is now the case. There are contract cases in which prevailing party attorney fee clauses are built in. So you don't always have to file a malicious prosecution case to get your attorney fees back. There are certain cases that allow you to do it by law. There are contract cases that allow you to put it into the agreement in case there's a breach. On those cases that don't allow prevailing party attorney fees, I think if you want to recover fees, you then recover fees by way of a malicious prosecution or abusive process lawsuit. Sanctions are primarily monetary awards the court gives for bad behavior. And the most typical example of that is discovery violations. If one side serves discovery request upon the other and they either ignore it or fail to timely uh, respond to it, the court will then order a date for compliance. If the parties then fail to perform or the, the responding party fails to perform, then the court can either sanction them monetarily, which they oftentimes do, or go further and issue what we call evidentiary sanctions so that one side is crippled in a lawsuit because they failed so miserably to respond to discovery. So that's how sanctions work in civil cases. And really, the same goes true in criminal. If, the, if as a defense lawyer, I serve discovery on the government and the government ignores it uh, and it's a, possibly a Brady violation, which is exculpatory evidence being withheld, then you can move to dismiss or you can move for other evidentiary sanctions. So sanction is a powerful tool for all litigants. It just depends on what you're looking to get, money, evidentiary sanctions, or a dismissal, which is the ultimate sanction. Lair, do you, and again, this is just another hypothesis I'm asking you to offer. Do you think that people have more or less faith in the legal system than they used to? I'll give you a little context because one thing that I notice is that people still go to court. I think that people, uh, most people take an oath and try to do their best. Most people do. Many people uh, do play and follow the rules. But I sometimes get a sense that folks see really bad behavior taking place in the culture at large. 
you know, be it a high profile person who totally makes up a biography and keeps their job, <laughs> not naming names, not naming names, George Santos. Um, but so, you know, when that, when people see that, I wonder if it doesn't sort of have some domino effect in these other arenas where people are like, well, you know, all kinds of people get away with lying. So why should I take it so seriously? You know, do you think that we're just we're moving into a moment where because there's less trust of institutions generally that people are starting to trust our court system less than they used to? I think it's a combination. You know, I look at it, I, I think. For the reasons you just stated, there's less trust. I think social media has a lot to do with it. I think cases are tried in the media more than they're tried in a court of law. Uh, and that certainly influences uh, jurors, even bench officers. You know, everybody, everyone's human. If they prejudge the evidence because of what they're reading or what they're seeing or being inundated with in the news, on social media, uh, I think that plays into this distrust of the legal system, whether you're going to be able to get a fair verdict or not. And I think a lot of it is the legal talent today. I think there's a lot of lawyers that are out there to make the buck and not do the job. Uh, and I see that more and more as well. I see lawyers taking on cases and not putting the work in. And unfortunately, that's a sign of our times. What's your best advice for someone who is trying to navigate the system, who may be navigating the system, who doesn't feel protected by their lawyer, either rightly or wrongly, right? Like sometimes clients have unreasonable expectations. Sometimes lawyers don't do their jobs vis-a-vis uh, -vis their clients. But they're in the system. You know, they are trying to get through it. They may be up against an opponent who doesn't play by the rules, doesn't care to. What's your advice? Do your due diligence. Don't just take your friend's referral. Hey, I had a lawyer. He did a good job for me. Do your due diligence. You know, use social media to your advantage. Look the lawyer up on the internet. Call the lawyer up. Ask the lawyer questions. How many trials have you done? Uh, how many cases like this have you handled? Best thing is to contact prior clients, but that's difficult because lawyers maintain this privacy for their clientele. You know, that's a difficult end run around privilege and privacy. But do your due diligence and look the lawyer up, see what kind of experience level the lawyer has. Talk to other lawyers who might know him because you're really putting a lot of faith into that lawyer. And if you haven't done your due diligence to find out how good that person is, how experienced that person is, and how well-versed he is handling cases of the type you're looking for an attorney to represent you in, then you're going to get what you get. And you may get lucky or you may not. We've talked about court as being a an arena, a platform where people go to fight for the things that they think are important or that they need to fight about. Let's talk about you personally. What, what's important to you right now? What are you fighting for in life? Retirement. <laughs> <laughs> Bravo. Bravo, my friend. Um, yeah. I, uh, I have been uh, 
happy enough and fortunate enough to stay in touch with you since our days gracing the the small screen. And it was a pleasure and a joy and fun to work with you then. It is a pleasure and a joy. And I think really instructive for people to hear from somebody who's been in the trenches, in all kinds of trenches, civil trenches, criminal trenches. I, I think it's really, really important for people uh, to hear from you about what it's like, what you can do um, when it seems like the deck is stacked or when someone's not doing right in the arena where they're supposed to. So thank you, Larry Backman. Thank you it so much. It is my pleasure, Tanya. And you know, I feel the very same towards you. I can only say one thing, ditto. Mwah! Mwah! All right. <laughs> All right, you my be friend. Well. You too. 